the thrift store furniture stops being cool. Where, like, you you start to be like, uh, you start to feel like I should be in a different place financially, success. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Jackson, talking about another great play, a, a really funny play, a really uncomfortable play, a really, <laughs> I mean, character-driven, uh, intensely a scene based by that I just mean that like actors in conflict with each other is what drives this play forward and that always makes for interesting conversation because as the playwright notes in these several interviews audiences really come away with very different perceptions on what happens when you have these highly character based dramas yeah, yeah, different characters kind of bringing their different goals then kind of reveals um, your, the audience's goals and the different individual people within the audience's goals and who they resonate the most with. Um, uh, th this play is a great play for that because it's a lot of characters trying to like just make the best out of situations in life that aren't always ideal. <laughs> and so it's... I, I think that's true as well. Although I have to admit, I, I don't know if I think that because of my encounters with the play over, you know, the past couple of days in preparation or because of the playwright's note at the beginning yeah. of the play where she just says that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I think I may have been influenced <laughs> by Gina Gianfrido's voice at the beginning of the script. Would I have thought that? just seeing the play or just yeah. reading the play absent from her voice in my ear. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That is that is a valid question because I, I I read that note and was like, maybe I should have read that note at the end. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, usually you don't want to skip author's notes like that in, in right. plays. Although I, I don't know why they put uh, the, the – this is a separate, totally side issue. It should not be called an author's <laughs> note. I don't – I vehemently don't believe that playwrights are the same thing as authors. But set that aside for now. Fair, fair yeah. Fair. It, authors notes. you usually don't want to skip that kind of stuff because it really tells you something important about the thing that you're about to read. In this case, though, it did feel a little bit like spoilers. <laughs> It's true. It's true. If you haven't uh, checked the episode title already to figure out what play we are talking about uh, today, we're talking about Becky Shaw by Gina Gianfrido. Uh, extremely excited to talk about it. It's a great play. Uh, um, and and as we've said already, the way that uh, it all kind of weaves together these characters' lives um, and puts them in some pretty, like, Compromising is the wrong word. Um, uh, 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 difficult situations um, where they're they're making painful choices against other people, um, but based on their own goals and their own uh, objectives and their own relationships, it just is a great play for conversation. So I'm excited to get to talk about it. 
Yeah, in one of the interviews with uh, a cast member, I think it was a cast member from the off-Broadway production, although I can't quite remember, uh, they were talking about sort of their perception of what the play is. And the description was like, it's a play about a uh, brother and sister in this very complicated relationship, but also about this marriage <laughs> that's a very complicated relationship, but also about this relationship with the mother that's a very complicated relationship, but also about this first date that's a very complicated relationship. It's just like the <laughs> layers of gray area, of hard decisions, of unclear paths forward are really what define the choices these characters have to make in the play. All the while, I mean, being a severely funny, dark comedy. Yeah, yeah. Lots of irreverent comedy, lots of like kind of noting the funny in the midst of the painful um, and and just kind of quick also just just quick and witty dialogue between the characters who have who kind of just in the writing alone displays the length of their relationship often, especially between uh, the the brother and sister kind of um, in the play that just the, the level to which they know each other, the level to which they know which buttons to push <laughs> in each other's lives in individual moments is just awesome. Great writing. And uh, yeah, it's 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 just full of that kind of dialogue and interesting stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The writing is so good. I, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time in other episodes just being in, in awe of the sort of scene level writing that people do. I remember being blown away by a couple of the scenes in between Riverside and crazy, for example, but, and, and this, that kind of like over bubbling of how great the writing is, the characters, the dialogues, the competition between ideas certainly holds through in this play. There are other things that happen happen in this play that are so uh, enticing to talk about that we may not be able to do the same kind of like me spending nine minutes just saying how great the writing is in any particular moment. But rest assured that Gina Gianfrido is an incredible writer and that her her scene level, dialogue level, competition of ideas level writing is as good as anybody. Yes, yes. Excited to kind of jump into the conversation and kind of deal with the big sweeping stuff of the play. Um, before we do, we have some exciting news to share. Um, we're announcing our themed month for this season 10 of No Script, the unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. We are um, uh, excited to be kind of jumping into one of our uh, every season we've done this tradition of we'll take a month and kind of have a set of four or five plays, depending on the month. It's almost always four plays. Um, and uh, they're all kind of in conversation with each other in some way. Um, and we'll kind of reflect on those uh, previous conversations as we have the new one. It's a fun time. And this month, we're doing mini month. Or this, this season, we're doing mini month. <laughs> Yeah, mini month part two. We in the past in a different season have also done a mini month, but because mini month is a like a form uh, uh, theme, I guess, or a form yeah, yeah. decision, right? Rather than being about like a particular topic or a particular playwright, this is like a particular form of play in terms of length. Um, then it made sense for us to come back to it because it's not like we talked about all the short plays or one acts our last go around. We only did four. And, you know, it's not even like those four are representative of all short plays or right. one acts. So we are we're coming back this season 10 to many months. We will read four short plays or one acts to have in conversation with each other. We'll sort of see. I remember last time we did many months, we ended up uh, spending some time thinking 
thinking about like how a short play works different than a full length play. What does it mean when you say my play is a one act or a short play? Why, in fact, do contemporary playwrights not really write one acts anymore? It's just not a form that is as popular as it was in especially like the mid and late 20th century. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating conversation. I don't want we'll have that conversation during the month, maybe. But it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it is a fascinating form, a fascinating like kind of like you got to pack so much punch into that shorter, you know, page length. And uh, excited to uh, kind of reflect on that a bit more in the month to come. I believe we're what three weeks away from that. Yeah, it should be month? three episodes from now. It'll happen if you listen along as we go. In April of this season, April twenty twenty three will be our themed month for season 10. If you're listening back, it start, should start in about three episodes from now. Um, it'll be you know, highlighted in the podcast. We'll be talking about it more as we get closer to. But as our big public, hey, themed month is coming up. Mini month part two, short plays. We're looking forward to it. Hope that you are too. Yes, indeed. Looking forward to chatting with you all about that. Mark your calendars. Mark your play shelves if <laughs> if you want to read along with the plays. And uh, excited to uh, to jump into that conversation with all of you. Yeah, okay. Before we jump into our episode about Becky Shaw, we just want to take our regular moment to encourage you to consider heading on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's all one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Over there, you can become a supporter of the show. This is sort of how we fund the life of the show is through Patreon. At this time, we're not like getting paid by advertisers to insert ads ads in the middle of the show in order to fund the running of it. We have an incredibly supportive community who wants to have these conversations, who wants to, to have this chance to listen to us talk about plays and then engage with us in those conversations afterwards. And those people think it's a valuable enough proposition to have in the world that they support us on Patreon. We really believe in keeping the level of support accessible to everybody uh, so that the lowest tier that you can join in on is a dollar a month that totals $12 a year. At that amount, you're a patron of the show and we're super grateful. That amount is super helpful. Um, so check it out. There's higher tiers, of course. If you can afford more, it really benefits the show to have that come in. We say, you know, almost every time we talk about it, Jackson and I love to do the show. It's a great part of our lives. We love to talk about plays. That's why we started doing it. But running this podcast at this level in this way would not be possible without the folks that support us over on Patreon. There's financial costs. There's a time investment. All of that that goes into being able to make this show run. And the folks on Patreon make it happen through their support. It's a crowdfunded model, you know, that people in, in bulk decide that this is valuable to them and that makes it possible to continue doing in the way that it's been done. If it's not you yet, if you're not one of those supporters, please think about it. Again, lowest tier is a dollar a month. We really believe that that's affordable for the vast majority of people who are listeners of this show. So please think about it. If that is you, if you're one of those patrons, it's our regular episode reminder that we are so grateful for your contribution. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Again, it couldn't happen without you. So please know that 
that your support makes doing this possible. We hope to see everybody over there on Patreon. Uh, those folks over there probably already know what the scripts for mini month coming up are. That's one of the benefits. There are others. You can check them out over there. Thanks to everybody who supports the show. Yes, thank you all so much. A delight to get to share these conversations with you over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. And now, back to the script. Here we go. All right, I'm going to jump into some uh, brief context about this play. We've already done uh, Gia, Gina Gianfrido on the podcast before, and we've done Rapture Blister Burn in previous seasons. So I'll just Great give the short... Title. Great. Yeah, I don't great. even remember what I said about it. Now that I'm saying great title out loud, I feel like maybe I didn't think that before. I don't know. At this moment <laughs> in time, I think Rapture Blister Burn is a great title. Definitely. Kind of brings you in, makes you wonder what happened. Um, and uh, so so we've we've done uh, some context on uh, Gianfrido before, but suffice to say, as we've already kind of uh, gushed in the earlier parts of this episode, uh, we're, we're fan such fans. Uh, she's an American playwright, television writer, known for her work on, uh, certainly on this play, uh, Becky Shaw on Rapture Bist Blister Burn, After Ashley is another one of her big plays. Um, she's also a writer on Law and & Order and FBI Most Wanted. Um, so uh, uh, oft, an oft-produced and often-writing playwright. Um, this play, Becky Shaw, um, uh, received its first production at the Humana Festival at the Actors yeah. Theatre Louisville. Yeah. <laughs> We're on a bit of a run this, this season of talking about the Humana <laughs> Festival. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that was in 2008, in February of 2008. Um, received great reviews at the time and somewhat quickly transitioned to an off-Broadway production at the Second Stage Theater. Um, and uh, that production ran for about four months. It was extended uh, through, uh, kind of started at the end of, of uh, 2008 and extended through to March 2009. Um, great, great production, great show. Interestingly, the, there's kind of a continued artistic partnership between Gianfrido and Peter Dubois, who has directed uh, many of her plays. So Dubois uh, uh, directed that production as well. Um, there, there were a number. I, I think I, I, I would hate to have this totally wrong, but my understanding from some interviews is that they went to graduate school together, um, and then even sort of lived together in, I think, in a platonic way. But they just were, they were artistic partners, and so they sort of forged into the world together in that way, starting with their graduate school work together. Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe that's right as well. Um, and and they kind of continue to do plays, um, do plays, uh. Going going on into even like uh, I believe the last her last production 2016 production of Can You Forgive Her was also directed by Dubois. So, um, uh, the this production though which Becky is also a novel adaption. Ooh. Can you forgive her? I read uh, and that is true of this play too. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm somebody that's very interested in novel adaptions as a sort of premise for creating new dramatic work. So I actually didn't know that Gina Jean and Frito had done this much this level of work with novel adaptions. So that is fascinating to me. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this show, though, Becky Shaw uh, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, as was Rapture Blister Burn. So uh, Gianfrido, multiple times uh, uh, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. 
Um, it also uh, was nominated for a number of other awards. Gianfrido uh, uh, won the Outer Critics Award in 2009 around the release of this play. Uh, the play was nominated for the Lucy Lordle Award, Outer Critics Circle Award, and the Drama Desk Award as Outstanding Play. Well-lauded play, and then kind of hits the regional scene. And uh, I don't have a list of all those productions, obviously, but this play is often produced. It's a cast of five characters. Some, uh, we were talking before the show, some complication in terms of the locations that you have to go to. So for smaller regional houses, you got to have a, a nice back stock of like hotel furniture and home furniture and stuff like that to kind of pull off the different locations, but lots of ways to produce this play and great characters to get to dig into. If you're a regional actor and have a chance to be in this show, please be in the show. I'll be looking for it for sure. Yeah, I, the character work especially, but but you're right about the locationality of it, and because the play is about to some degree like class and environment and, and that yeah. kind of those kinds of relationship things, it is hard to imagine this show without the kind of environmental dressing of every individual location that would be you know maybe somewhat hard to do because there are several. I mean, what like four to six different locations throughout the play. And you really, I think you kind of need that what is around them, the kind of stuff they own in contrast with the other scenes that that tells part of the story to some level. Yeah, and also, also what different characters are willing to buy because class and money are such a such an important part of some of the underpinnings of this play. And so seeing the different like hotel rooms that they're in, notably like there's like star grading difference between different hotel rooms <laughs> that that show up in the play. So yeah, all of that is kind of an important part of the storytelling at least to some degree. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So, hey, in in anticipation of talking about that kind of stuff, here's just a brief overview, a brief summary for you so that we're all kind of on the same page. As I said earlier, Becky Shaw is a kind of novel adaption. Uh, Gina Gianfrido talks about reading the novel Vanity Fair as she was sort of creating, gathering the fodder for a new play. That novel, it was published as a serial in like, you know, before 1850s. So we're talking about a really old novel. Uh, and it, it, the novel is quite long. It's about a lot of different stuff. But one of the plots of that novel is a woman named Becky Sharp, um, who is sort of in a lower class in, in society and desires to marry into a higher class. And so she has a friend who uh, has a brother and she tries to marry the brother, um, and the friend is uh, uh, the, the the brother. Well, all that to say, it, <laughs> I, I'm not going to go through the novel story. That just doesn't make a right, lot of, right, of sense right, for right, the right. use of our time. But all this to say, it is a generally speaking kind of a loose adaption of that part of the Vanity Fair novel. You'll see, of course, that that character's name is Becky Sharp. This character's name is Becky Shaw. Now, what is interesting about this play and its title is that Becky Shaw is like only one of several major characters in this play who go through, you know, major things across the course of the show. We may talk about, I, I'm actually fascinated by why she titled this this play, and there's a, an interesting tidbit of a story about that uh, in, in the playwright's note, the author's note, at the beginning of the script that we can maybe talk about, but the plot, I'll just go through it at the most basic level. Uh, there is a woman named Susanna, and uh, she is in a hotel room at the beginning of the play. Uh, we learn her 
sort of uh, brother, although they are not actually related, her adopted brother, let's say, Max. These are uh, older people. These are older. They're not kids anymore. They're in like their 30s. Um, Max and Susanna have a discussion in a hotel room where we learn that Susanna's father has just passed away and that due to his financial decisions, he has not left them in a very good financial position. So they've come to New York City to meet Susanna's mother, Susan, and Max's like adoptive mother, Susan, uh, to discuss what the plan is going forward. You learn very quickly that there's a lot of conflict in this family. Uh, Susan doesn't want, like to talk about money. She doesn't like to talk about the decisions that her husband made. Max makes an accusation that her husband was potentially uh, in a homosexual relationship with his business partner, which is why he made such bad financial decisions. It really sort of spins out into a big argument. Um, you get some stories about Max and Susanna where it becomes very clear that they're adoptive siblings, that Susan and her husband took Max in after a bad situation, which is important to learn that because at the end of this scene, Max and Susanna sleep together in this hotel room in New York City. Then we skip ahead um, a fair amount of time, eight months later, into an apartment where Susanna, again, and her now husband Andrew, so totally different guy, her now husband Andrew uh, is living. Uh, in this scene, there is a conflict because Susan, again, Susanna's mother Susan, uh, has had a uh, health scare of some kind. They only know this because they received an accidental call from her health insurance because they have the same name. Uh, and, and they can't get a hold of her. They don't know what's going on. There's all this conflict in the family, so there's some feeling that this is like maybe a trick of some kind or that the mother's being stubborn in some way. Andrew is trying to help, but it quickly becomes clear that this is an interruption to their evening because they were planning to go on a double date, a blind date that they were setting their friends up for. We learned some other important things. Uh, Susanna and Andrew have not been married very long, only a couple of months. They did not date for very long before that. They met on a ski trip that Max in the previous scene had been encouraging Susanna to go on. Um, and they were kind of married in a runoff to Vegas kind of a wedding very quickly after starting to date. Um, and so now they're three months into marriage and they are on this evening. They've set up Max from the first scene, Susanna's adoptive brother and one time lover. Uh, they've set up Max in a blind date with a temp worker, a new worker, basically at Andrew's office job, uh, Becky, Becky Shaw of the titled character of the play. And there are some worries about this because Max has a really aggressive kind of almost bullying. It's described that way in the play personality. Uh, Susanna really believes beneath it. There's a heart of gold, but that he has kind of a tough exterior. And so that's a worry because, uh, Andrew who doesn't know Becky very well, but he knows that she is sort of delicate. He describes her as being in a kind of transitional phase in her life. Um, the playwright's notes describe that she was probably a very successful high school student, a very popular high school student, very pretty. But then due to some unfortunate events in her life, she's sort of stuck. She doesn't make a lot of money. She doesn't talk to her family. Andrew knows that she's sort of delicate is how he describes her. And he's worried about how that's going to interact with Max. Max shows up and the kind of conflict with Susanna's mother uh, bleeds into it because Max, I don't know that I said this, is the, also their financial advisor. That's like what he does, a financial advisor. 
supervisor. So he runs all the money for this family. So he gets involved in the mother's stuff. Um, eventually it's resolved. They learn that the mother is okay by phone, but it's kind of ruined Susanna's taste for going on this date. So her and Andrew decide to stay home and they send Max and Becky out on this blind date together alone. And that's the end of the act. And the end of the act description is like, you know, something in the final picture should let us know that this is a big moment where everything is about to change for these characters. The top of the next act, the top of the final act of the play, uh, the first line is Becky saying, something bad happened on my date with Andrew, <laughs> or with Max. Yep. <laughs> She's talking with Andrew at lunch at the office, and she describes that they were robbed uh, at gunpoint on their date, and that Max hasn't called her to talk about it, that she is really distraught after being robbed, but hasn't heard from Max. Andrew says, wow, what a jerk. I will definitely get Susanna to tell Max to call you. Next scene, Susanna and Max at Max's hotel room. He he lives in Boston temporarily because he's putting up an office building or something. And he Susanna's like, you got to call Becky. Max doesn't want to. He didn't really like her. He's upset with Susanna and Andrew for setting him up with someone he perceives as desperate, someone he perceives as much less than him. He doesn't really like talking about emotional, empathetic kind of issues anyway. So he doesn't want to like comfort her through being robbed. Um, he also describes that they've all had a lot of terrible family stuff happened to them and so the idea of like being robbed is not like the worst thing that's happened to him even in the past couple of years is his sort of emotional wall defense against that Susanna really pushes him please 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 will you call her um, that scene ends basically like with uh, we'll think about it um, I'll, I'll think about it basically uh, the next scene is Becky and Andrew back together. Again, Andrew is actually married to Susanna, but Becky is like his friend from work, and they're starting to spend a fair amount of time together that you get here. Um, Becky says that she called Andrew over because she heard a weird noise, and she's so scared from the robbery that she like needs somebody to be with her, but she doesn't have any friends or family. So she calls Andrew um, over, and in this scene we learn that actually after the robbery, Max and Becky slept together, um, and then Max kicked her out, wouldn't let her stay the night, just sort of sent her out after having slept together and hasn't talked to her again, still hasn't called her. Andrew basically takes over as a sort of knight in shining armor, and I mean that in a very sarcastic way. Uh, I, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. Again, he's married to Susanna, so you can see the problems that are starting to develop. Uh, and don't ever talk to Max again. I can't believe it. Next scene, we're back in the hotel room. Susanna and Max are having a, a sort of pr prolonged argument about this. Uh, you know, Susanna's point is like, don't you you, sh you slept with her? What happened? How did you? Why did you do that? You're still not calling her. Um, but then she starts to confide that she's becoming worried how much time Andrew's spending with Becky. And Susanna's point is basically like, Max, please, if you just have this conversation with Becky, she'll go away. I'll get my husband back and we can have our normal life again. This will be over for you. This is the only path forward. Uh, in a sort of attempt to help Susanna, it seems, Max agrees. So the next scene is a date, or not really a date, a conversation at a cafe between Max and Becky. 
Becky basically says, you know, the conversation quickly becomes like, why didn't you want to be with me? Like, what what happened on our date that you didn't want to continue to date me? You, you knew, when did you know you didn't want to see me again? Why, you know, what, then why did you sleep with me? It, the, the question of whether this was about the robbery, in my opinion, moves, it moves past that fairly quickly. And Becky, in a sort of upfront manner, just says like, what happened? I want to know. Please tell me. Max, who again doesn't like these kind of conversations, starts to try to escape and then basically Becky says, well, if that's how you felt about me, you shouldn't have trusted me with a big secret, which is that I know you slept with Susanna all that time ago and that you, you neither you nor uh, Susanna have told Andrew, Susanna's husband. Uh, so that kind of becomes blackmail, or at least that's Max's uh, sense of it, and he kind of grabs her arm. Um, and then we go into a scene between Susanna and Andrew where Andrew has clearly learned that Max grabbed Becky's arm in this cafe, he interprets it as like an assault. Um, basically, Andrew tries to stand up and say, you can't, you shouldn't see Max anymore. He's a terrible person. He did all this stuff to Becky. He grabbed her arm in this cafe. He's terrible. I'm putting my foot down. You shouldn't see Max anymore. Uh, uh, Susanna responds badly to that. And so then basically Andrew says, you know, I got to get out of here for a few days. We really need to think about what's going to happen with this relationship moving forward. Susanna is very clearly worried about the fact that he's going to go spend time with Becky there you can sort of see the stakes of their marriage here then we go down to where Susanna's mother Susan lives there's been another emergency her like live-in boyfriend has been arrested so Susanna and Max are there trying to deal with this problem again Max is kind of their financial advisor their fixer uh, but Andrew didn't come because we learned that Becky uh, you know tried to commit suicide by cutting herself this is an in an offstage scene and Andrew has gone to like comfort her and be with her go to the hospital which is concerning to Susanna that he's not there for this emergency with her mother um, I, I'm going to skip a lot of the conflict that happens there just to sort of describe the resolution Andrew finally shows up with Becky in tow and basically says I, I know we've been in this fight I really want this marriage I don't I'm not interested in being with Becky I know it has seemed that way I've been confused but I'm not interested in being with Becky I'm interested in being with you but we've got some stuff we need to fix and so he and Susanna agree that they're not going to see Becky or Max anymore without the other of that married couple in the room. This means that both Becky and Max feel kind of left alone. Um, uh, Susanna and Andrew go back to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, I think is where they live, uh, t together. And they end up leaving Becky and Max behind with Susan to deal with the her boyfriend being in jail thing. Um, and the end of the play is Becky sort of trying to rekindle things with Max by basically saying, look, they, you know, th we lost those two friends of ours or those two possibilities for our future kind of based on who we are and the way that we behave. I understand you, Max, in a way that nobody else does. I lost my parents. I also feel alone. And so she starts to slowly work on Max again. Um, and then th that's just how the play ends. We don't know what's going to happen. And Gina Gianfrido has said that she doesn't even really know what is going to happen between the two of them after the play. So that's the whirlwind, bad manners. I mean, it's all in this sort of very funny. These are highly intelligent people who speak in witty, sarcastic, brilliant. They all have these brilliant things to say. Um, they're all drinking a lot of the play, as you can imagine. 
And I I love the description made by many different companies and the New York Times review of this, uh, thinking about this play as a kind of comedy of manners or, you know, in a sort of twist play on words, a comedy of bad manners. Yeah, yeah, nice. And nice work kind of collecting the maelstrom of the play into 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 something something pithy because there's so much going on in this play and certainly one of the things is that 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 sort of comedy of manners, comedy of bad manners. People there it's playing with the Vanity Fair book a little bit certainly inspired by some of the stuff, but this sort of um oddity of kind of the contemporary 21st century dealing with class in America. Um, which is just a very odd thing. It's a very in- intangible thing in America because we kind of mask a lot of our classism sometimes. Um, but uh, but the, uh, this this play uh, really kind of uh, examines it a little bit and I think brings it into an approachable vernacular that isn't like, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with something off the top of my head, a Chekhov play or something like that, um, that, that like has really clear like levels of society. This is like a family that's kind of mired in um, in in the reversal of a well-to-do family that had a big business that had a lot of money that helped um, Max out and when when he didn't have a lot of money and his family wasn't from money but Max has kind of reversed those tables and become someone with a lot of money um, but is still on the outside of this family uh, at least from the mom's perspective and then the two of them of of Susanna and Max kind of caught in the middle of that sort of that classist struggle. Yeah, I actually was surprised by the the number of connections between this play and The Cherry Orchard. Uh, you mentioned Chekhov, and Gina Gianfrido mentions this play, Ch- The Cherry Orchard, too. And, you know, in The Cherry Orchard, there very much is that reversal of fortunes where, in that case, like uh, the grandson of one of the serfs that had worked on the estate ends up becoming rich enough at the end of The Cherry Orchard to buy the estate from this wealthy family who's now doesn't have any money left after all the changes in Russian society and all their bad financial decisions and yada, yada, yada. And what's interesting about this play, you described it very well, is that it's this family who's had a reversal of money fortunes. They used to be rich, but due to the bad financial decisions of the father who passed away before the action of the play, they don't have a lot of money left. Now, they're not going to be poor or anything, but they're they're down. They have to be much more careful with their money now. Everybody does. Um, Meanwhile, Max, who was like, or he, he considers himself an orphan because his mother died and his father is like a useless, he's in jail a bunch. He's, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't have any kind of parental role in Max's life. It doesn't appear. So he gets taken in by this family as a kid. So, you know, comes to them with nothing. Um, and indeed very late in the play, we learn that, uh, uh, Susanna's father, Susan's husband, uh, like actually paid Max's father so that he wouldn't just send him away into the, you know, into the ether to go live with a relative in Texas, but that he could come live with his family. So, you know, Max comes to them as a kid with nothing and now as an adult is wealthy and he's the one taking care of everybody. He's the one paying for the expensive things. He has, it seems, an infinite supply of cash. Um, and so it's interesting that, the you know, the way the cherry orchard ends with that huge reversal of fortunes it sort of feels like that's the way this play begins and and then then throughout you kind of have further pepperings of different folk uh of of uh who are all trying to make 
make it work in some way. Andrew is this like just ended job at a coffee shop or a coffee collective or something like that to get an office job, but is also harboring dreams of a writer um, and uh, and like uh, being a writer and trying to balance that and like not wanting to work too much so that he has time to write for something that doesn't make money, but that might make money someday. You have Becky who, uh, you know, went to, went to a great university and tried, tried really hard throughout her high school and, and early college time, but had this sort of traumatic event that caused her to drop out of it. So you have the kind of broken dreamer or, um, or, or, uh, still, um, or, or perhaps, perhaps a better term for that is resilient dreamer. Certainly in Becky's case, she kind of continues to push, even though she's in the middle of still trying to figure out how to pick up the pieces from, from, uh, what she lost. So you have all these kind of characters that have, that are dealing with where they have found themselves in their like, for sure, late twenties, probably early thirties for most of these characters. Um, and trying to like cobble together what life looks like, even when they're maybe not, they, they it's not everything that they imagined that it could be. I, I love it. In, in one of the interviews with Gina Gianfrida, she talks about what was interesting to her about this idea for a play is that they're, she and I think it was the director that was her longtime partner were kind of fascinated with the idea of they're, they're coming a moment. They described it as being in your 30s. I, I don't it may be different for you depending on your life, but they're coming a moment when like the thrift store furniture stops being cool. Where like you you start to be like, you start to feel like I should be in a different place financially, success, family, you know, all these things that sort of weigh the expectation of society in America, at least uh, on you. And you start to feel like where I am, I'm embarrassed by. And so she uses the metaphor of the thrift store furniture, right? Like I living in this crappy apartment with this thrift store furniture is no longer like I'm, I'm young and working my way up. It's cool. It's, it's a status symbol in and of itself. It starts to become embarrassing to you. And you start to, to look at, you know, the gap between where you are and where you think you should be. Which not going to lie, kind of felt called out um (laughs) and i think i think that's a really uh, part of the reason why this is such a resonant play is that it kind of looks at that moment of life that a lot of folk are going to certainly a lot of folk that are going to theater are going through um and and uh certainly offers that side of things up but you also have characters who got it all who have the um sort of like uh cultural success uh, uh, or at least in the in, in the American concept, the popular American concept of cultural success, who also are going through a really similar sort of angst of like wanting to find a relationship that sticks around for a long time, um, especially the character of Max is going through this and trying to, uh, even in the midst of his apparent success, f- maneuver his way into maintaining those relationships even past the time when that the when Susanna has gotten to uh, uh, gotten gotten married to Andrew or uh, past the point when Susan who kind of repeatedly tells him that he's not her kid um, and that he'll all at the end of the play is you'll always be a guest in this house which is just a brutal line for the end of a play yeah um, yes. <laughs> and their relationship he continuously tries to maneuver finding a relationship that sticks around which is why Becky's um, offer at the end, is a compelling one, despite the fact that they've been antagonistic towards each other. Certainly he's been antagonistic towards her for much of the play. Despite that fact, 
She offers him the one thing that he wants, a relationship that might stick around. Yeah, Becky in that kind of final confrontation, I love the stage direction, so I'm going to read the line before and after the stage direction with the stage direction included. She's, uh, this is, Susanna and Andrew have left. Becky and Max are now alone. They're away from home helping Susan with this deal with her boyfriend in jail. Uh, I think Susan is off stage at this point, and Becky is really making her case here. She says, listen to me, Max, we have damage. People like Andrew and Susanna will always run from us when we show them who we are. And then listen to this stage direction. The stage direction is just aim and fire. And Becky says, I see everything you are, and I'm still here. That's just such great coaching from a playwright, I think. It's not too prescriptive, but it tells you what you need to know, which is that this is this is her shot. I mean, this is it. Lay the cards on the table, hand it out, here we go. And it is that kind of... Um, I, what, it's fascinating to hear Gina Gina Frito talk about it, and she does a lot of interviews about how different audience reactions are, how different people, people sitting next to each other at the same production will have totally different perceptions on who's at fault, what decisions the characters are making, and different characters take a lot of crap, different characters get a lot of empathy. Becky, of course, takes a lot of crap from a lot of audience members. And um, Gina Gina Frito comes to her defense a lot and says, look, this is, a per- this is not a person who actually is clingy or awful or manipulative in in like her heart of hearts. This is just a person whose life has not worked out for her and she's willing to lay her cards on the table in a way that the other characters are not. And so that can feel uh, very upfront. That can feel different than what you would want or expect or feel like is, you know, quote unquote normative for people to behave in relationships with each other. But in reality, it's just Becky willing to be more honest and upfront about what she needs and wants and why she feels she should get it than other people are. Now, that may not be your perception of the play. Again, we joked at the very beginning about how like Gina Gina Frail writes a lot of those kind of notes at the beginning of the play about you should see these characters as really good people, as like everybody just trying to do their best. And it it does feel a little bit like, I don't know what I would have thought about this play if I didn't have that going in. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Well, it's and and I think that's why, like, that 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 uh stage direction in particular towards the end of the play adds another facet to the character of Becky, who through much of the play gets kind of this like um Certainly the descriptions that other people make about her in the lines of the play, like if you're just watching the play, other people's descriptions of her is this kind of like, she had some stuff happen and she's she's not in a good place right now. She's, uh, she's uh, I think I think you said that um, uh, Andrew refers to her as delicate sometimes. Um, she has some of these lines that are like, yeah, I don't really go out all that much. Um, and uh, but but a line like this given to an actor to try to portray well shows another side of Becky, of this someone who sees sees the moment where she is able to affect change in her life and continues to take it, um, and and uh, line up the shot, aim and fire is is a really simple way to kind of show what Becky is capable of and her willingness to continue to push for for something better for herself. Um, 
even while holding the kind of tension of where she's been in this play, which is um, uh, she she kind of uh, co-regulates quite a bit and needs like and kind of pushes herself into Andrew and Susanna's relationship in a way that borders on inappropriate for for a good chunk well, of the it, play. I mean, that's the question, at least one of them about Becky is that, you know, there's a reading of this play or a reading of her actions where she's is she feigning you know the, uh, yeah you don't know she's yeah experiencing yeah. in 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 order to sort of steal andrew away from Susanna, uh you know in, and to to what degree like is she conscious of that or is she so i think that is a lot of the crap that becky takes i think you also could say uh on the flip side in the you know becky's totally a saint argument would be like she was robbed at gunpoint <laughs> and the guy she was robbed at gunpoint with then slept her and then never called her again and left her to deal yeah. with this by herself. She doesn't have any friends. Her family abandoned her because they're racists, basically. I mean, literally, that's the story. She was dating an African-American person and her family was like, it's him or us because we're racists. And she chose right. him. And so, like, her her family left her because they're racists. She doesn't make any money. She, you know, her, she doesn't have any friends. So, like, there's a, a more empathetic saint-like reading of Becky that is um, this what a crappy situation to happen to her and she's yeah. doing the <laughs> best that she can and the, you know the truth is probably somewhere in the middle I love Susan's uh, Susan of course is Susanna's mother right and, and she uh, she doesn't meet Becky until the last scene of the play. And after getting and help being in the bathroom, helping her change her bandages, she comes out and very near the end of the play, she's talking to Becky and says, you may have been very victimized in your life. You may be a complete con artist. I don't know. My sense is you fall somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 real. So certainly, certainly that's true of Becky. Um. And I think to some degree, though, that's true of a good chunk of the other characters too. Like. Oh yeah. Yeah. They all they all have this like something really bad happened to them, and they they made survival techniques to survive it to some degree. And, um, and, and there's, and they're now in this moment in life where all of those kind of survival techniques are kind of thrown off by, by some sort of catalytic event. Um, you have, um, uh, uh, Max and Susanna sleeping together. That's certainly, that's certainly a, a, a catalyst at the beginning of the play. You then have yeah, the subsequent. I mean, they think of themselves as brother and sister. So yeah. That's, that's a big change. It's a big change for sure. And then eight months later, she's married to someone else. Andrew enters the picture out of nowhere. Um, uh, certainly within the context of their relationship. Um, but then, then, then Andrew's and she there. she met and Andrew on the ski trip that Max was pushing her to go on. <laughs> After they slept together, um, and <laughs> and so 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 met him there. He's in he's in the world now. And then Becky Shaw comes in. It just keeps you keep getting stranger comes to town um, over and over uh, as each of these characters kind of, or at least stranger comes to town if the kind of form formative person who's experiencing the stranger is Max and Susanna's relationship. Kind of over and over, you have these these events that like, oh, something new gets added. Oh, something new gets added. Oh, something new gets added. And you're just kind of out, out of those kind of previous moments of either trauma or something terrible happening to them. They keep each of the characters subsequently keep making choices based on this kind of new information that they keep getting. No, I think you've you've hit on a... I mean, I think maybe even the question for interpreting this play um, is 
is the play about Max and Susanna. Yeah. Right? I mean, is the is the story of this play about Max and Susanna? And in order to grapple with that question, it it becomes hard because, again, this is character-based comedy. Um, there is a plot, but the plot does not drive it as much as the characters drive it. And so it becomes hard to identify things like, what's the inciting incident of the play? And I think Gina Gina and Frito has complicated that and this is not me saying that that's a bad decision it may be a very very good decision but it is more complicated by titling the play becky shaw and we've talked in other situations about how when you title the play after a character you are handing to the audience a lens through which to interpret that play If all they know is the title going in, then they know that the playwright has said, this play is about Becky Shaw in the sense of titling it that. And I I don't know that that's really true about this play, but it does seem like maybe even an undue amount of the conversation about the play, at least from what we have found, centers on Becky Shaw. And even our conversation so far has been almost a third of our total time here has been talking about Becky Shaw. And you wonder if this play were titled something else, would that still be the read on the play? It's it's kind of like like you you name the seagull Nina or something like that like like it's 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 that sort of like uh, uh, re refocus it's it, and and that makes it hard to like because um, because if 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 the uh, kind of core relationship of the play uh, is is in fact uh, Max and Susanna then then perhaps the inciting incident fairly classically would be dad dies business is going under forces them into conversation with Susan about things that they don't want to talk about um, and kind of sparks the, this, this sort of relationship moment. And then we see the pieces that split off from there. Um, but, but it doesn't seem like, we, yeah, uh, or, be- or I think I would maybe say that it's actually Max and Susanna sleeping together. You know, that the the dad dying financial stuff just seems kind of par for the course, honestly, <laughs> for that family. That sort of seems like the normal world of chaos and, and family dysfunction. And then from that flows this thing that changes them, Max and sure, Susan. Sure. Together. But sure, yes, yeah, something in that first scene incites the rest of the play. Yeah. But then you have this really... Um, the really impactful scene at the end of act one that you briefly described in your synopsis. And it's, and it's centered around Becky and she's shown up. Um, they kind of have this sort of uh, uh, awkward, <laughs> very awkward start to what was going to be a double date that is now just turning into a date. Um, and you have this kind of lighting effect described in the stage directions centering on Becky um, as, as this sort of moment that everything about their life is about to change. All of these characters' lives is about to change. Um, and that pretty directly like names that this is at least partially, um, uh, the inciting incident or something like that. Um, the out of which is going to flow a bunch of complicating action. So, so yeah, it does, it, it riffs really, uh, interestingly to like centralize Becky Shaw, both in the title, but also in the action of the play, um, and her kind of late arrival in it. No, that, I think that's totally true. I find that stage direction at the end of Act One uh, very interesting because it does feel like this is the moment from which things are about to start, but we're halfway through the play. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a long way to go. I want to read the quote from the author's note, or playwright's note is what I would call it, but let's go with that. Um, about, uh, I said it when I was doing my summary that the title of this play was much in question. And I want to read what, 
Gina Gianfrido says about the title of this play because I just think it's amazing. As a title person, like hearing how the decisions about titles came into being, I think are really interesting. So uh, Gina Gianfrido says, I was puzzling over the many novels I read in college named after female characters that are A, destroyers, B, victims of, of destruction, or C, both. Most often, they are both. They're terrible reversals wrought by sexual indiscretions and attempts to climb into a higher class. I'm thinking of novels from the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries, mostly. Books by Richardson, Tolst uh, Flaubert, Tolstoy, Hardy, and Dreiser, to name a few. On the dramatic front, I'd throw in Hedda Gabler and Miss Julie. I tried to change the name of this play at one point, and my director, Peter Du Bois, urged me not to do it. He said that the title Becky Shaw felt ominous and perilous for reasons he could not name. He led me to understand that we have a great literary tradition of ruinous and ruined uh, eponymous women that we've internalized without analyzing. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, so that 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 definitely like again <laughs> through through the note at the beginning, but but I think also through the play itself um, directs us towards this character um, and 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 uh, more I don't know nuanced engagement. With with a character that we maybe uh, could be led to uh, kind of view as stereotypical or view stereotypically um, uh, based on her actions. Yeah, she she clearly has continued to think about the title and this this sort of view of the play in lieu of other famous uh, works that have female characters as the title character and like what that means. Like I, you know, the novel Ethan Frome is named after a male character. It has a very different view of Ethan than for example, the play Hedda Gabler does of Hedda. And like, how have we sort of internalized things like misogyny? Uh, you know, this idea that women are manipulators and class climbers and right. The, the, the convention in a lot of sitcoms, gold diggers, right? I mean, how have we internalized that when we title plays based on women? Um, and in one of the interviews, the interviewer is discussing their view of Becky Shaw in the play and has some fairly negative things to say. And Gina Gina Frito kind of interrupts and just asks point blank, do you think that same thing of Hedda Gabler? Mm, and I mm -hmm. do think that has become one lens through which to view the play. It's a sort of uh, naming the play Becky Shaw is sort of becomes a higher commentary on uh, these these female characters at the centers of stories, and when they become the the title character, what is that for? Sometimes it seems to be because they have this like quote unquote bad behavior, and that's why we name novels after women. And like, what does that say about our culture and our desire to find that in in female characters? Whew. Yeah. Big question for sure. Big. And, and this, this play is like, has so many of those, like, I, I don't know. It's like, it's, 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 it's peeling back the kind of social constructs of, of, uh, of, of this moment, which is what, which is exactly what kind of class-based plays are, are always trying to do. They're trying to look at why, why these, these things that you're blind to all the time, these things that you're uh, not, not thinking about when you make reactions or decisions in your life um, uh, are underpinning each of those decisions. So class-based comedy of manners, play of bad manners, do the work of kind of pulling back the, the carpet 
uh, and and looking at at the underpinnings of why why we kind of do the things that we do um, without even thinking about it sometimes. And there's a great example of that if, if we just want to look dramaturgically at how Gina Gianfrido does this, and it becomes a, an issue of contention later in the play. It's a brilliant moment of writing. There's my gushing moment for this play. Uh, <laughs> it, it is Becky Shaw makes her first entrance into the apartment, first time we've met this character. We have learned a couple of things about her, right? Andrew said that she's delicate. They Right before she comes on stage, there's a discussion about how she doesn't have a cell phone and like what that means for like in whatever this, however this works in America, like her class, like how much money does she make? What can she afford or not afford? We've learned some of this stuff about her and she comes on stage and she takes off her coat and she's wearing a dress that I, Gina Gina Fritter's stage direction is amazing. It, it's basically, my summary is, it's just a little too formal for this occasion. It shouldn't be a sight gag, that's what she says. It shouldn't be like, oh, she's wearing a ball gown. That was not right. It's just a little too formal for this occasion. And that immediately sets up that Becky Shaw does not have the same kind of lived experience that this group of friends that she's coming into have. And then later, as uh, Susanna has gone to Max's hotel room to to argue with him about the state that he went on, uh, Max brings it up. She's desperate. Look at the dress she wore on that that date. And then he comes out and says, again, plays kind of sometimes they voice the things that you described as being sort of hidden and silent in our society, right? He says, uh, you know, or, or Susanna, I think, says, wait, you think I've set you up on a date with someone who's not good enough for you? And Max says, that's a fact. That's not an yeah. exact quote, but that's the summary of that. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, it's 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 uh, revealing all the assumptions that they make about each other, that they make about uh, certainly what her lived experience, also the resources that she has available to her, um, and and uh, yeah, it's 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 uh it's it's full of moments like that, full of these little tiny things that uh, kind of can be brought out in the space of live theater, um, and and uh, kind of examined in a in a really visceral way, as opposed to just kind of you know going through life not knowing about them, which is why the comedy of manners is such a great form of theater and so masterfully pulled off in this script. I will say, as we're just out of time here, I know that we gave, in this conversation, we gave Susanna far too short a shrift. I would say I would sort of identify her as the central character of the play. If this is a person on a journey, she's the person on the journey. She's the one we follow that makes these major decisions. The best example of that, and I actually think it kind of sticks out at the end of the play, is that she she has this crucial realization that's going to change her, her path forward. And Andrew and Becky show up, and you learn that he's also had a realization much to the same effect, but his happened off stage and for me that moment tells me everything I need to know about who I'm following in this play yeah Susanna's realization happened in conflict with other characters on stage it changed her that's the story we're on and Andrew comes in having had an off stage moment to the same effect yeah no that's 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 certainly good uh, analysis and also that moment um is is such a stunning moment in the play where these two characters make this uh but 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 Susanna leads the leads the decision making for something that is a drastic change um maybe even i mean uh, it's 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 the 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 decision not to ever meet with someone outside of the room with each other is a drastic change um but it's one that they both make because they both commit like hard commit to each other in this scene it's a very like uber mature 
like maybe, maybe like su- such a big moment for these characters who kind of are at each other for a lot of this play. Um, and, and yeah, to have kind of that bo- be born out of Susanna's conversation with Susan and her conversation with Max really centralizes her role as the decision maker, her role as the, the, um, yeah, the one who we're on the journey with. Yeah. And, and the fact that, um, you don't really see, I mean, you get a little bit of it, of the fallout from the fact that like Andrew is not going to see Becky anymore is very much like a minor sub decision. What really comes out of it is the, the cost and the, the major change when Susanna says, I I'm not going to see Max anymore by myself. We can't continue to have this thing between us. If I'm going to be in this marriage with Andrew, it really shows off the way in which the play, what it really changes is Max and Susanna's relationships that they've had since they were kids. And that relationship is under a microscope. Different people have very different interpretations of it. Very late in the play, we get Susan, the mother's, interpretation of their relationship which is totally different than anything that we've gotten before and I, I I don't know because it comes late in the play it feels a little bit like it's given undue weight her interpretation of the way that the relationship has been manipulative that's not to say that's wrong but it's also not to say that I don't know that I I don't think we see Susan as like a clear-eyed third party <laughs> that's like I have all the correct answers. Like I, her interpretation of that relationship is just as much biased as anybody else's is. Yeah, she she certainly has lines later that reveal like, "Oh, you have some damaging views of yeah. the world." Um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's so much more. There's so many facets to each of these characters that we could easily fill another like hour or two of conversation with. Um, and that's one of the great things about this play. If you've ever seen it, you know that it generates great conversation um, and engages these characters really well. So while uh, we are, alas, out of time on this podcast, we'd love to keep having the conversation with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Becky Shaw with all of you. Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation or if you have disagreements with this conversation, follow up. We'd love to talk with you, like Jackson said, but also think about recommending this episode or this podcast, other episodes that you've liked to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes theater, scripts, stories, this kind of a discussion of characters, of writing, anything like that, send them our way. They can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and other places that you can find podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and a link to the new episode appears every Monday when we publish. One more reminder, Mini Month Part 2 is on its way in just a few short weeks. We will see you then. We have episodes between now and then, of course, our regular programming. But in just a couple of weeks, we will have our dedicated month to looking at one acts and short plays. So until next week when we're talking about another one of theater's best scripts, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast.